Okay, so today I'm speaking with Don Linda. Don is a friend from Chiang Mai, and we've also worked together on a number of writing projects, including screenplay. Don's a native New Yorker. He's an award-winning scriptwriter, fiction and travel writer, and an academic who's lived and worked across five continents. He's probably best known for The Last Executioner, a movie that won a number of awards, including Best Film and Best Screenplay at Thailand's Takata Tong Awards, the equivalent of the Golden Globes here. Don and I talk screenwriting and his new movie The Cave, a drama covering the story of the Thai football team who were rescued from a cave last year. One thing I did forget was to ask Don for his contact details at the end, but if you do want to contact him, then I've left his email address in the podcast description. Here's my conversation with Don Linda. Afternoon, Don. Welcome hey, to the Task Podcast. How are you doing? Thank you. Good. Nice to see you. Yeah, nice to see you. We're, so today we're in, um, in your uh, condo in uh, just off Canal Road, Chiang Mai. Again, most of my podcasts have been in Chiang Mai. Um, a place where I've sat with you, <laughs> I think, a number of times, uh, talking about character motivation, uh, plot, uh, stories, you know, banging, banging heads together. Um, and I think maybe it's a, maybe a good starting point is just to, to talk about some of this stuff, you know, in terms of, of your screenwriting. You okay. know, when, when you look at screenwriting, you know, what do you love about screenwriting? And what do you really fucking hate about screenwriting? Because <laughs> the two things can be close, right? Right. right. Well, I, you know, I think you know already that I'm I'm much more character centered than plot centered. So I, I just love delving into characters and their motivations and their reactions and sort of just knowing a character. Um, I can't say I hate plotting, but, <laughs> but it's not it's not where I normally gravitate to. So I mean, that's those are the things basically. Those are the two ends. So plotting and you know, when we chat today, you know, a lot of our listeners will not understand the structure of screenwriting, so it's good for us to explore some of this stuff. But everyone knows character, but when you talk about plotting, you're talking about the structuring of what is going to be written, right? Right. I mean, um, you know, as, as a lot of people know, there's a standard format, a standard plot development format for, for films, and I have a lot of trouble following that. <laughs> so I think one of the reasons I like being character-centered is because I can... I can follow the character's arc, and a story comes out of that, rather than having to put that character into a particular plot arc. So, and you know, to to talk specifics, when um, so you, you know, you're known for the Last Executioner, um, mm-hmm. and I've seen that film. It was great. It did very well. Um, you know, you spend a lot of time with the act, the real character, right? right? right. You, you tell us some of that that experience and how that helped with the writing. Okay, uh, I'll try to give you the short story on it. Yeah, uh, we've we got plenty of time. You okay, can, you I, can be extended. Chavaret uh, was the last execution. His name was Chavaret. And uh, I first met him, I just randomly went to a presentation at the Foreign Correspondence Club in, in Bangkok. And uh, he was on a panel of three people on prison life. It was Chavaret, um, a woman named Susan Alders, who's been friends with Chavaret's family for many, many years. Australian woman, and a Thai travel agent who spent 10 years in uh, in prison for money laundering and who was just manic depressive. I mean, he was out of it. But anyway, Shamaret went on and on, and he was talking about it. And what, what gra- this is sort of my arc for characters. What grabbed me about Shamaret was he's a guy who executed 55 people, um, and yet he's, he was up there in the dais 
in uh, Dockers and an Izod shirt, like anybody would be sitting next to on the uh, Skytrain or whatever. And uh, this is what interests me about characters, um, sort of anomalies of who they are and what they do. Mm-hmm. So afterwards I went up and um, asked his agent, actually, uh, or his editor, he had written several books, um, uh, for an interview. And a week later I was up in his office at Bangkok Prison, which most people know as the Bangkok Hilton yep. from, the, uh, from the movie. And um, he was no longer an execution at that time. He was foreign affairs officer. And we sat, um, we sat for about three hours, three or four hours interviewing, but the, it was the weirdest interview I'd ever done because he had, um, he had been a rock and roller in his youth, and I yeah. knew that from reading his book. Uh, so for the first half an hour, without any introduction, he sat there playing air guitar for me and singing me Beatles songs, and you know, uh, it was just absolutely absurd. But it was great; it was absolutely great. And so from that, I, I developed a story, and you know, we developed a friendship. Uh, unfortunately, he died before we even started writing the. Oh, the really? Script. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So he didn't get to see the, the he, end product. He didn't even like know that. that the script was being written. Yeah. Uh, it, it, was, it was kind of an awful story. Um, he retired uh, from the prison, uh, prison life, and, um, you know, they weren't rich, but he had a pension, and he and his wife, Kintu, thought they would have, you know, a nice retirement, do some things. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and he shortly after developed cancer, and it spread very quickly. And uh, he died fairly rapidly, within, I think, about six months or so. So, um, so he never got to know that the film was actually being made. And that's, you know, kind of horrible. But, yeah, right. um, but my, my wife, Lita, and I are still very close with his family. They're like our second Thai family. And uh, amazingly well-adjusted people, <laughs> considering uh, what their life has been. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And he... I mean, when watching that film, you know, his character, well, his life, um, which ultimately shaped his character, um, you know, had a lot of natural conflict in it, you know, which is what you need when you're writing characters in screenplays. Is yeah. that right? I mean, that's how I yeah. perceived it. Did, did a lot of that come out naturally when you met him? I'm, when I talk about conflict, I mean that, you, you know, the kind of spiritual Buddhist element of being in Thailand versus the contradiction of that, of having to go to work and, and shoot people, which is what he right. was doing, right? Well, it's interesting you, you asked that. Um, <clears throat> at the FCCT, the Foreign Correspondence Club, you know, after, after the presentation, of course, there was a, a Q&A. And uh, what, what struck me was that, uh, I mean, a lot of people at the FCCT are pretty hard-hitting, well-known world journalists. And what is it? Sorry, the... The, 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 the members and the people who are at the FCCT, they're pretty... Uh, hard-hitting journalists. I yep. mean, they're, they're well-known around them. And I felt that a lot of the, the questions were pretty softball. Yeah, okay. And I, just by accident, I ended up asking him the last question. And the question I asked, uh, which I now realize he had been asked maybe a million times before, was how do you reconcile your Buddhism with um, your job? Yeah, you know, right. Of killing people. And um, he was very good at compartmentalizing. That's how he got through, through this whole thing. And uh, he, he had a kind of pat answer that he was um, facilitating the transition of the prisoners, you know, from one life to another. And uh, he, he felt he was doing good by that. But in fact, as we got to know each other, he, he wasn't um, a real hardcore 
believer. Yeah, I mean, he felt, he felt that he had a personal spiritualism, but he wasn't the type who went to the Watt all the time. His wife is much more like that. Um, and um, I think he was just very good at compartmentalizing. You know, he didn't, uh, he didn't set out to be an executioner. He tried many different jobs. He was in rock and roll in his youth, and his first love was always rock and roll until he met his uh, soon-to-be wife at age 19, and uh, she got pregnant, and he was a very responsible guy. So he decided he needed, you know, a day job. Yep. <laughs> and uh, he tried many things. He worked at an oil rig, he was a teacher, uh, pa um, paramedic, all kinds of things. None of it took. And finally, his cousin um, said there was a civil service exam. You should take it. Turned out the civil service exam was for a prison guard. <laughs> he took it, passed. And uh, so he spent actually several years before he became an executioner. He was very methodical. Guy, I mean, n now we call him OCD, you know, and um, so and the, the prison authorities recognized that, and uh, when they when the uh, execution of the old executioner retired, they asked him to take over, and it was a good job, you know, it it, it provided him with a pension, uh, educational benefits for his kids, and that's those were important to him. So that, that's how he ended up there. And was, it, was he famous for being the last executioner, or was he famous? I mean, obviously, he was famous for that, but it, was he also famous because of his character as an executioner? Uh, or was it just um, purely because he happened to be the end of the line? Yeah, <clears throat> good question. Um, he, he was the end of the line um, in, in terms of execution by gun. Yeah. Uh, what happened, and when he, re, when he decided not to be executioner anymore, and, um, they they can they went to um, lethal injection, and which was a three-person team, and basically each person on the team pressed a button, and he just wasn't interested in that. And, and he also was he was getting to the point in his life where he was really questioning what he was doing. I mean, his his ability to compartmentalize was breaking up, mm. um, so he really didn't want to be part of this anymore. Um, so. In answer to your question, I guess he was most known for being the last of that line. And uh, and then he used that very advantageously. I mean, not, not for personal gain, but he he was on speaking tours, he was on TV programs, he would uh, lecture at uh, schools against uh, using drugs and that sort of thing. And, um, and then bizarrely, you know, which is portrayed in the film, he was on uh, Thai game shows and, and uh, so, you know. Hence the scenes. Is that the influence of the scene? I yeah. thought that was being just stylized in the nature of how you made the movie, but that was actually no, more we, to I the mean, point that the game show scene within the movie. Yeah, yeah. It, okay. was, it was a takeoff. Um, there, was a, there was a game show in the States called uh, To Tell the Truth. Yeah. which is basically the same thing. I mean, uh, three people get up and they say, my name is blah, blah, blah. And then the panel has to ask some questions and guess which one is the real person. And many countries had a version of that, you know, did spin-offs of that. And Thailand, you know, Thailand had one, and he was asked to be on a game show. So that, I mean, a lot of the film, I say about 50% um, of the film, my devices, or, you know, my devices based on some based on realities, some just, you know, my imagination going wild. Um, so, um, yeah, so those, those sort of scenes and uh, quite real. And, uh, and he, he was a, kind of a celebrity. 
for a while. And before the movie, so he was a celebrity in his oh, own yeah. right as a as an executioner. Yeah, okay. as an executioner. But then after he, uh, after being uh, executioner, he was a celebrity for his his books. He wrote, uh, I believe, it was a total of seven books, uh, three in Italian, four in English. He spoke English, you know. Yeah, I was, was going to ask that actually. I mean, I, right. I made the assumption because obviously you, you you're not Thai, fluent right. in Thai, right? Okay. Right, and and uh, and that's actually how why he became. Um, foreign affairs director, because he spoke good English. He was very personable with the, uh, so he could interface with the prisoners, the foreign prisoners' families, and the embassy personnel. Um, he, was a, he was a good guy. And, and that's actually what interested me. He was a good guy who coincidentally executed 55 people. Hmm. Yeah. But it, it wasn't like he went in every day and punched the clock and, and shot somebody. Yeah. You know, it was, it was, that was over 19 years. Um, but, you know, that, that was the anomaly there. And that process, I mean, we won't go off on too much of a tangent. Mm. I know it's not. You've written the, you wrote the movie, but it's not necessarily your expert area. But that process, which now doesn't exist in terms of execution, it was done with, an, with one gun, was it? Or was it done with a number of guns? And it was done where you could see? I, I do, this was in the film, and I don't remember. But right. for those that haven't seen, what, what did the process used to be out of interest? Right. <clears throat> um, you know, most people think of execution by gun as a firing squad, where there's 11, 13 people, whatever, and only one has a, has a bullet. It's a live bullet. The rest have blanks. <clears throat> in Thailand, it was one person, one gun. And <laughs> uh, it was actually a machine gun. So the prison was pretty well sliced and diced before, you know, by the time he was dead. Um, really quickly, the process was the prison was brought, the prisoner first went through um, talking to a, a monk or whatever. He, he could write his uh, last letter to his family or the king or Buddha, Lord Buddha. Um, and then he was led to the execution chamber where he was tied to a crucifix. I mean, there was no Christian sim symbology in it, but he was tied to a crucifix with his back facing the gun. Then a screen, a cloth screen, was rolled in in front of him. A doctor would come in and place a small bullseye cardboard target corresponding to where the, the prisoner's heart would be. The gun was aimed at that. And then the executioner would come in and um, pull the trigger. And um, <clears throat> Shagrat told me, normally he loaded 15 rounds, and he would shoot them in bursts of three. And usually he got off nine or 12 rounds. Yep. So the prisoner was pretty dead. That's pretty, pretty brutal, but it, pretty uh, necessary if you want to get the job done right. Yeah, right. At the end of the right, right. But, it, I mean, uh, I don't mean any offense saying this, but in a way, very tight. Yeah, know, right. Um, How do you mean? That's interesting. Well, because... If you look at the uh, uh, previous methods of execution, up until 1932, when they went to gun, um, the preferred methods of execution were beheading. But again, it was, it was a very stylized uh, ritual. Um, the, the prisoner would be, you know, he'd be put on a block. Um, his head would be put on a block. The um, execution with the sword would be behind him, and surreally, there would be like a, almost like a jester in front of him, kind of trying to distract him, you know, which, I mean, I don't know how you distract somebody whose head is going to be cut off, but, you know, but, but that was a sort of, and, and it was very public. Yeah. And then the, the prisoner's head was put on a stake. So this was until 1932. 
And in some instances, instead of that, they would put the prisoner into a, a sort of life-size hacky sack ball, which had spikes inside of it, and then they'd have an elephant roll around the hacky sack ball until the prisoner was right, dead. Right. I didn't know. So you had to. Do, you obviously did this research. Did you yeah, as part right. of the, yeah. the movie? And, wow. and right, there's more. Just, yeah, okay. <laughs> before that, there's a the old prison in Bangkok where we shot a lot of the scenes. Actually, the prison break scenes and everything. <clears throat> um, that that's a museum now, and they have um, they have dioramas, life size dioramas, and they have paintings about. 30 or 40 paintings of um, executions dating back to the Ayutthaya period, 500 years ago. <clears throat> and um, there are paintings of uh, executions in such ways as uh, slicing off the prisoner's flesh little by little, grilling it, and force-feeding him Not with why, his own why. flesh until he died, uh, spikes, uh, cut, cutting off the top I of mean, the head and spike. I mean, it's really. I mean, this gruesome. sounds like Tower of London stuff, but yeah, right. actually, but a little bit more creative. <laughs> yeah, if that's right. the right word. Right. <laughs> so, so, in a way, I mean, execution by by machine gun was almost the most humane way that yeah, they did right. it. You know, over the years. So it, it was. It's a bizarre background. Definitely, it? it sounds like some interesting research yeah. and nothing else. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the movie did really well yeah. in in Thailand. Um, what are the reasons do you, you think there were, other than it being a good movie? You know, do you think the subject matter itself was interesting? Uh, it didn't necessarily stretch further than Thailand, but it was in Thai, right, in subtitles? Uh, yeah, actually, um, it's a little bit opposite oh, to what you Oh, in China as well. Didn't it do well in China? No, well, actually, what happened was um, it didn't do very well in Thailand. It did well in Thailand in, in that it won uh, Best uh, Film and Best Screenplay for me. Uh, at the Tukata Tong Awards, which is the Thai equivalent of the uh, Golden Globes. Uh, so in that sense, it did well in Thailand, but in terms of commercially, uh, this isn't the sort of film that most Thais go to see. Mm-hmm. It was in Thai with, with subtitles, English subtitles, and uh, the English subtitles were basically my script, yep. uh, which were translated. Um, <clears throat> but it actually did very well in other places, in places we played about, 200 festivals worldwide. And in some places, like in Cambridge, uh, England, uh, got rave reviews. I mean, really good That's stuff. That's good. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I think, I mean, from uh, being English originally, uh, you know, there is a, there's a kind of hunger for those types of films anyway. And that mm. obviously, the, I think the title helps, right? It, you know, titles is only the beginning point to watching a movie, but just right. the last execution is going to attract a certain demographic of people who are inquisitive to know what the subject's about. Right. I, I mean, I wish I could take um, credit for that, but that, that's actually the title of his most famous book in, in Thai. Okay, in, so in English, it was yeah. taken the from that from his book. Yeah. But, but um, <clears throat> people confuse this a little bit. The, the film is not based on his book. The film is based on my extensive interviews with him, uh, my friendship with him, and uh, my research, which was really intense, yeah. and, uh, and, uh, and as I said, about I say about fifty percent of it were my devices. For example, in the film, there's a uh, a spirit that plagues him. This this is a <clears throat> a very Thai traditional. This thing. is played by David. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. And and uh, the spirit is known as Yama, which is basically the angel of death or the devil or whatever. And the and Yama has two assistants, the Yamatut. <laughs> and um, so 
based on that, my research into that, which in itself was extremely interesting, um, I created this character and um, Chavarette's interaction with this character. But in fact, he never said anything about that, or he never wrote anything about that. So, yeah. mm, okay, it's good. Good to say you. Uh, Obviously, you've got the, the big film coming out soon. But before I ask about that, and it might be a good segue into it, I wanted to talk a bit about collaboration. Um, you know, we've done some writing together, and I, I know it's interesting for me being a, I would say, a more junior, maybe not the right, you know, more novice writer, and I learned a lot from you coming in, you know, a few years ago when we worked together. Um, and having mixed in the writing community, people typically like writing on their own, they like to be in control. Writers are, you know, and this is not a rule, but I would just say the, you know, a, um, above average in terms of the numbers, knowing writers, people who, you know, tend to be isolated, you know, isolated, want to work on their own. Um, you know, when I started writing, I had come from a business startup background, which was 100% about collaborating. So for me, it was interesting coming into something where you tend to do it on your own. And there is definite benefit in that alone time. But there is also, you know, a lot of uh, energy around the collaboration aspect. How, how have you, how do you find that, you know, how is collaboration, do you prefer it on your own? How do you see the difference between the two approaches to writing? Right. Um, um, actually, you're the first person I ever collaborated with. I, I am not a collaborator. <laughs> I'll tell you. Really. Um, I mean, I felt comfortable working with you because I, I felt we, we mesh. I mean, um, much more than I ever imagined could have been. Uh, and I think part of that is because you're a very good plotter. And I think we, we balance each other. A good off. what? Sorry? Plotter. You can plot well. Okay, yeah. yeah. And I think we balance each other off very well. And if, I'm sure you remember, but, you know, we we would sort of slot out a few hours to do something or a day or two, and we get it done very quickly, mm. uh, which kind of amazed me. But in general, no, I'm not. <laughs> I mean, I'm like most writers. Um, um, so it's very interesting just to, when you talk about being a good plot, because actually, I, like you, I far prefer the character oh, okay. exploration part. But interestingly, when you sit down to design a startup, you know, there is yeah. a real creative process around structure, and actually, it was just that. So it's interesting that you say that. I had never even considered right, that's the first right. time. I mean, I hadn't heard you say that. So it's, it's interesting to think that I was probably wasn't approaching it as a writer. Actually, I was right, probably right. approaching it as someone who worked in a lot yeah. of startups. Well, you know, I mean, for me, uh, I think you know too. I, I've sort of worn two hats all my life. One is a writer slash artist, and the other uh, it's a very academic background. And much of my academic career. Uh, has been as either a department chairperson or director of programs and everything. So, which in, in itself can be a very lonely kind of position. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, you're the point man, for better or worse. And um, so, but you do have to have a certain amount of collaboration in that, although I wasn't always successful in that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a weird one. Uh, there's a... I don't remember it exactly now, but at one of the uh, Oscar awards, uh, Robert De Niro talked about, he was giving the award for script writing, and it was something like, uh, he said, you know, script writers, you know, they're neurotic, uh, caffeine-addled, you know. It's when he talks about the nightmare inside of script right, writers. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. And then, then he ends it <laughs> by saying, and that's on a good day. <laughs> and, and, and it's very true. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, but just a script writer, any writer, any artist, I think, you know, 
always is full of self-doubt. And, you know, one moment we'll look at his or her work and say, oh, wow, that's genius. Another moment, look at, oh, my God, how could I do that crap? You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's, just, it's just part of the game. Well, that's, know? I think, the first question I ask you is about that. You know, it is, there is a beautiful frustration in writing, right, or particularly in screenwriting, that, right. that you know, the pain of it is actually the pleasure of it. You know, it's, and then right. when you have those breakthroughs with plot or with character motivation, it's, those are always the the moments of light that make it all worthwhile. So, um, The reason I said it was a segue, though, is that, and I, hopefully I'll research this right, you, so you've written this, um, you've written the latest movie, The Cave, but that, you're, you're not the only writer. No, right? that was a one degree that, yeah. So yeah. that, and how was the experience? So this, the, the, the cave story is obviously um, about the, the boys in the cave. Right. You know, I think everyone who's listening to this podcast would know that story. It was global. Right. Uh, they were uh, they were inside, uh, stuck in that cave system for you know a few weeks before being rescued. What? How was the? Oh, we haven't had a chance to even talk about it, so mm. this is the first time I've even asked you about it. Right. But what was the firstly the research experience like with that? Did you have to go through the same process of you know going and visiting? Yeah, the I caves, mean, meeting the boys. Right. Well, we never met the boys, actually, because they're, they're very um, guarded at this point. Uh, you haven't? Or you ha- no, I never You did. haven't, okay. Um, but part of my academic background is that, again, for better or worse, even a, a script, I, I, I approach it like as a doctoral dissertation. You know, I do extensive research. I mean, I have reams of uh, papers, you know, and, and computer files of research. And I, I go off on a lot of tangents because that's where I get a lot of the energy from, a lot of the ideas. <clears throat> but the actual process of that was, was very different from what we did. Um, uh, Tom Waller, who directed The Last Executioner, is a director-producer on the Cave film. And his wife, Katie Gross, um, is another producer, she's assistant producer or whatever, co-producer on that. <clears throat> and the way we plotted that out was um, Katie and Tom came up here and we sat in this very, uh, in this very sofa and chair, and I think Katie sat on the floor there or something. We had a whiteboard and a couple of markers, and we spent a day just plotting this thing out. I have a picture of it someplace. This, cool. this, this um, whiteboard that probably nobody else could decipher except the three of us, because we knew what was on there. And <clears throat> then the process for me actually was quite easy, because, um, I mean, I, obviously I participated in that process, but then I, I had specific scenes to write. We sort of meted it out for specific scenes and then wove it together. So in a way, that, that was quite easy for me. That was know. quite fast as well. So you, well, you mapped out what the kind of structure with all the turning points <clears throat> yeah. and then broke that, back, broke broke that further scenes. down into scenes yeah. um, and an outline. Okay. Right. So, I mean, that, that was... But still, for me, the, the amount of research or the depth of research was pretty much the same. Yeah. You know? um, did you visit the caves? Have you we been? did, yeah. yeah. Actually, um, we visited the caves um, before they shut them off to the public. Actually, they were already shut off to the public, but Tom got special permission for us to go to the mouth of the cave. Yeah. <clears throat> and I have to tell you, it was a mind-boggling experience. Really? Because I, I mean, I had seen all the newscasts and, and uh, photojournalism and everything, and for some reason I assumed that it was, the cave entrance was on ground level, and I knew it was a small entrance, but I figured, okay, they walked in and everything. Not at all. They had to go up a, a s- slippery slope, then 
once they got to the top of the slope, they had to go down about a five-meter escarpment that was wet, moss-covered, <clears throat> and then the opening to the cave was, was maybe, it wasn't even a meter high. Wow. And so it was a very deliberate effort. <clears throat> and and when they, once they got into the cave, once they got, I don't know, maybe <clears throat> 20 centimeters in or whatever, it was pitch black. So it was a very deliberate effort. And, and, and they really had... I mean, they had been in the cave before, the boys, and uh, so they sort of knew their way, but it, it was not easy. Mm. So, yeah, we went up there, and then we, um, we interviewed a number of people. Locals. Uh, it, lived around yeah, there. locals and that sort of thing. Yeah. And um, there's a, a particular myth associated with the story, too, which I, I became fascinated with, and um, it, it's sort of part of the film at this point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it was... Really, an eye opener to go. Is the myth? You don't want to do a spoiler. A spoiler alert. You, you want to tell us that you don't have to if you don't want to go into the myth, or is it? Yeah, I can tell you very quickly. Tell, I mean, tell us high level without going. We don't want to spoil the. No, no, it won't spoil the, anything. It's public okay. knowledge. Um, okay, the the myth is of a mythical princess called Nang Nong. Uh, Nang Nong, <clears throat> the locals believe that she was a princess who fell in love with and got pregnant by a stable boy. Her father, the king, was pissed off. Uh, had the cable boy killed, uh, cable boy killed, and uh, Nang Nong was so distraught that she took a hairpin and uh, stabbed herself in the heart, and the blood that flowed out became the blood uh, became the water flowing through the cave. Okay. So in fact, the cave itself is called Nang Nong. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole thing, and the mountain in which the cave is housed, uh, the locals see the silhouette of that mountain as the princess in repose dying. <clears throat> so it's pretty interesting. So, did they, so that's, I mean, you hear these stories, that is very Thai as well in terms of when you yeah, get into sure. the villages and stuff. Right. Did that story then relate to some sort of bad luck in terms of, or good yeah. luck, or both? <laughs> both, actually. Yeah, right. uh, I mean, the, uh, in really in a very simple form, I mean, uh, people believe that somehow the boys got trapped in there because they angered the spirit of the princess, and they came out alive because somehow they appeased her. Right, okay, uh, makes sense. You, know, you believe what you want. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, you know, myths, myths are part of every culture, and they're very important to people, and they, they create their own realities, you know, as they did here. Yeah. yeah so. and, and how, um, you know, I was going to ask you about this is not something I've experienced. Well, I have maybe in a maybe in a small way, but you know, when the writing comes alive, actually, have you seen this with this movie? Were you on set? Were you when it was filmed? For, for some of it, yeah. How is that experience? I, I mean, I've obviously just with when we shot the pilot for right. um, Dark Armor in in Bangkok, I've I've been part of that in a very small way. But right. even in that small way, it's extremely. Um, Satisfying. Well, <laughs> boring in terms of sitting yeah. around, but I think seeing yeah, right. characters yeah, sure. say your words <laughs> off the page yeah. is interesting. No, I say boring, boring because you know, <laughs> most people think you know a film set is really exciting and everything, and it's really boring well, because um, yeah, you just you shoot the same scene. I mean, what you see on screen for thirty seconds might take half a day to shoot. Yeah, that I do know. Maybe that's maybe I was lucky in the fact I was shooting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, shooting but, a pilot is probably the perfect way to experience the it. The glass half full of side of that is what you said. <laughs> I mean, it is very exciting to see your scenes come alive. Not always in the way you wrote them, <laughs> but that's another story. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was a good experience. Uh, the the um, 
the boys that they hired, who were actors, you know, to play the uh, the boys were they were very very similar in look, and they they were good actors. They were yeah. very good actors, and they did a good job. I think for me, the, um, and so mo- most of what I saw was up in Maasai, the area of the cave, and shooting on location there. But actually, maybe the more interesting thing for me was um, the cave scenes were not shot in a cave. Um, <clears throat> Tom's location director found a um, uh, an abandoned Olympic sort of uh, athletic area on okay. the outskirts of Bangkok in an area called Raman Trap. <clears throat> and uh, it's been abandoned for about 10 years. It's huge. And uh, it, it includes an Olympic-sized swimming pool, which was um, abandoned also. And they spent a month building a rocky cave set over this, wow. uh, over one end of the pool, yeah. filled it with water, and the, <clears throat> in order to mimic the, the darkness of everything, these scenes were shot overnight. Um, so they were shot there, and it was, it was quite an interesting experience, because you had the cameraman and uh, the assistant director and everybody in the water, shooting the stuff in the water, and the boys up in the escarpment, uh, which looked amazingly like, you know, the inside of uh, where they found the boys inside the cave. And that was pretty fascinating. I mean, the the really fascinating part of of being on the set is how things are made to look like they should, which is very often, the reality is very different from what they end up looking like. And that was a very, very pointed example of that. That'll be interesting to see. Did that was there a lot of CGI involved, or, or there was a lot of set no, dressing? So they actually recreate. Right. They, there was no CGI in this. Okay, so that's actually creating the yeah. set. No, yeah, yeah. no, wow, that's yeah. that's some that's quite a challenge, yeah. and probably a lot more interesting to the eye. Yeah. I think you know yeah. personally. I mean, CGI is everywhere now, right? Right. But right. It, it's it's kind of satisfying when you get those the old school built sets, which right. often feel a lot more um, atmospheric sure. within a within a movie. Sure. Yeah. So um, when so you this the movie's coming out soon. It's um, it's it's going to come out. Um, well, the target date now is around September. Um, the, the rough cut came out. Two hour rough cut came out in March, and uh, th- there were some problems with it. So there's been some reshooting, some rewriting, and it, it's still in post production now. So the the target is somewhere around September. So kind of normal process anyway. Then yeah, yeah. Right. okay. September I mean, that's pretty that's pretty pretty impressive. I mean that's what a year and less than under a year and a half since since it happened. The film will be on screen. Yeah, and actually, um, I mean it was very um, ambitious because the we finished shooting. It was a twenty one day shoot, twenty one twenty two whatever it was. Um, I think it was either the end of December or the beginning of January. So, as you know, most post-production takes usually a year or more. So you're talking about half a year of post-production, which is really speedy. I mean, that's that's really fast. Um, But Tom has good people working on it, and, uh, you know, so hopefully it'll be out by then. But, um, you know, but it's not, um, you know, it's not a documentary. Uh, It's... it's, um, it has documentary elements to it, but, but it's, it's a drama. It's, it's a drama, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, I mean, there's been a fair bit of press about it, so I think, you know, 
I would imagine it's going to do well, like the last executioner. If not, is it in is it in English or is, mm-hmm. is it in both languages? I'm it, okay, a bit of, it, well, you've got all the Western divers in there, right? So yeah, I mean, um, people speak whatever the the characters speak whatever their language would have been. So okay. Thai speak Thai, um, English speakers speak English, Chinese, French. You know, everybody speaks their own language, and there'll be appropriate subtitles. Yeah, I mean, that was you know, the attempt to give it sort of more uh, reality. Yeah. That seems to be pretty standard with a lot of stuff these yeah. days. There's a lot more mix, mixture of cultures and right. languages in films, right? Right. was interested to ask you, um, you know, about how you see the state of the industry today. I mean, there's been so much change, particularly in recent times. Um, you know, my learning of the industry is, is only really in the last five, six years, but I've always been a film fan. I've noticed the changes, and I, I think there's no secret now, the absolute kind of aggressive size of mm. organizations like Netflix and 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 Amazon and I mean right. Netflix I think the you know they spent somewhere in the region of 13 billion dollars on content last year uh, against a predicted 8 billion right um, there seems to be good and bad I certainly have my opinions on it and you know how, how as from a as a writer and a creative in the industry how do you see the you know, this side of, of the industry and how it's disrupting things. Mm. Um, you know, with um, my background, I'm, I'm kind of old school on this. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm frankly disappointed. I mean, so much, as you mentioned, so much of it's CGI now uh, that you don't even have sets most of the time in a lot of films, you know. And, and I, I think, prob- I don't know for sure, but I think probably a lot of the actors are pretty much disconnected from the story. I mean, they go in and they do specific scenes and in front of a green screen, and, you know, that's it. So for me, it's disappointing. There are many films that are not shot like that, and I I tend to like those more. Um, But, yeah, I mean, the, the advent of Hulu and Netflix and Amazon creating their own content now, that's shaking up everything. Mm. And, and buying studios, yeah, I mean, I don't think it'll be long before they are a 360, you know, they're doing everything. Right, so, yeah. right, 360. Yeah, I mean, the, probably, I mean, the old studio system is probably going to die off pretty quickly. Mm. And um, I don't know, for better or worse, that's, that's what's going, that's the, the trend now. For, for a writer, um, I think you still need a good story, uh, but Mm, again, I, I, I can't. This isn't happening to me because I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not that involved with the big studios or anything. But I think that probably the the writer's role is becoming diminished. Mm. Uh, you still have to write a story. You still have to have a good story there. But you know, if you look at some of these, uh, some of the I don't know, Avengers stories. I went to or, watch the Avengers movies. For, I mean, I can't watch a movie now without analyzing every part. Yeah, of it, exactly. But, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> That's the horror of being. A but you know, you watch there, something right? like the Avengers, and you've right. written a screenplay. You, you're, you're thinking, you're looking at what's come down on the page, right, right, and you're right. like, oh, there was 20 minutes there when someone just wrote one line. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, exactly. Everyone blow each other right. up, or whatever. It's like, or even worse, there were no surprises. You know, because you know, you know the the points and every you know every yeah. plot point that has to be hit. So you know sort of what's coming all the time, and and if anything's off, you know, you you. you you notice lack of continuity, you know, everything is, is kind of like made into analysis. But, but um, yeah, I, I think probably in the future, the, the role of writers will become even more diminished, you know, except for a sort of broad outline or, or treatment. Um, you know, things like Avengers or um, 
uh, any of those those things, you know, uh, transformers or anything. I mean, to me, and again, this just might be my background, you know, I, they don't have any plots. I know? don't think, yeah, and I don't think it's just you. I think anyone yeah, yeah. with an interest in in decent movies, you know, I mean, I went to the Avengers in a certain mood. I wasn't expecting anything other than to be, you know, for my senses to be yeah. kind of blasted and entertained right. for a while and maybe to kind of switch off from the normal daily stresses of work. But, you know, it... It is hard. You have to dig out the good movies now, right? And what, but what I find interesting about Netflix is that they do seem to be churning out interesting um, uh, series, right? And Fascinating. Yeah, yeah that's, really I've good. never been yeah. a fan. I've always been a fan of movies, but I'm having to now, you know, I'm kind of redirecting myself to watch series because right. that's where you're finding the decent writing and, right. you know, <clears throat> Charlie Booker and, you know, there's there's just some decent stuff in series. There's less and less in movies, it seems. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, as we, we discussed just a few minutes ago before we started the, the podcast, I mean, I'm, I'm developing some pictures for um, Netflix series, and um, one of the specs that I was given was they need to be binge-watchable. And, <laughs> was that, um, the, that was the request from that Netflix? That was one of, the, one of the points to hit. And um, We so, need a binge-watchable pitch, brilliant. So I started looking... You know the technique of some of these, and just saying the hooks at the end of an episode have to be written very differently from in the past. They've got to be much sharper, and uh, they've got to really pull you along. And uh, they do know how to do it. I've just watched. I mean, I'm watching Chamber. I think at the moment, which is about a. Oh right, right. I'll start that probably tomorrow. Well, I mean, it's good. You know, it's not the best thing in the world, but they do know how to keep you. You know, it's very hard to to not go. I want to watch the next episode. Right, and and not just for the dramas. I mean, even for the comedies. Yeah. Um, they really pull you along. You know, it's very difficult to uh, to put it down. You know, and and I'm. I don't really have a lot of patience to sit and watch for hours on end, but sometimes I just can't help myself, you know. I, the first binge-watching I ever did was years ago, the, the first uh, first season of Game of Thrones, which I don't watch now because I'm just tired of it, but the first uh, se- season, I, I was uh, visiting a friend in Shanghai, and he had the DVD set of this, and he said, oh, you got to watch this, it's great. I didn't even know about it, I didn't know what it was. And I said, yeah, sure. You know. And, and uh, he and his wife went out for a day or something like that. <laughs> I sat there hour after hour after hour just, you know, throwing in the DVDs and everything. And, you know, it's easy to get hooked. I mean, it's really easy. Um, but, yeah, in terms of the writing. And, and, yeah, I mean, some of the stuff that Netflix is turning out now is just amazingly good writing. Yes. And, and the other thing, and well, this is, this is more for... Well, not, not just for TV, uh, but also, I guess, for movies also. One of the good things that's really come out of Netflix and these uh, content development platforms is that um, anything goes now <clears throat> in language, in visuals. Um, there's really, like, no self-censorship or you know, industry-imposed censorship, which, um, which doesn't necessarily... I mean, it doesn't... It doesn't translate into uh, pornography or you know or anything, but it really um, I think it allows the scripts to mimic real life mm. much more. Like I'm, I'm watching one now. It's a um, tragedy comedy or drama, whatever, dr- dramedy, whatever it's called. You know, uh, called uh, Dead to Me. Yeah, and um, it's it's really nicely written. And the the two main characters are two women who. 
uh, they're not in a lover's relationship. They, they're thrown together as friends. But um, I, I just, I, I marvel at how the language that they use and their actions and their, uh, their interests are just really normal. And it, it just makes, when I watch that, it makes me realize how abnormal a lot of the stuff in the past has been or how forced a lot of the stuff in the past has been. I love, I mean, if you make me think of a director, writer-director, Shane, Shane Meadows. I think that's, I have to look at the name, right, who did This Is England. He's just had a series come back by, that's coming out this week, I think, in the UK. But he has a real talent for doing that, mm. for just portraying reality. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to do, right? I mean, it's because you, you're inclined to want to create drama. Right. But if you can create <clears throat> drama in reality, it's, yeah, there's a real talent in doing that. And there's definitely a lot more stuff coming out right. on the series side. Yeah, I mean, personally, I, you know, I started off as a short story writer in New York. <clears throat> and, um, I mean, as you know, I, I love to write sort of dark humor. And um, I just automatically, I, I went to that kind of super reality stuff. I mean, that's just my way of looking at things as well. But I know that it makes some people very uncomfortable. You know, they, because it's a little too close to the bone. Yeah. And they've got to see the reality in their own actions and lives. And uh, I, I like that. I like doing that. You know, I think any writer likes doing that. But, but yeah, a lot of these new series and, and films are quite good that way. Yeah. I, you, you just mentioned New York. But I haven't really asked you a lot about your, your background. You've been in Thailand for how long? Oof, 18 years. So you, but you've been, a, you've been a, an academic and a writer all, pretty much all your life. Right. Really. <clears throat> and, you know, how, how have the differences been in terms of the influences living here and, you know, living in New York? I mean, you, you're a New Yorker, you're an American, but it's actually a long, long time in your past now, right? Just like me, it's... Well, you know, they always say you can you can take the boy out of New York, but you can't take New York out of the boy. And I'm I'm still in New York very much. In New, <laughs> New York, York in Chiang Mai, yeah, right? And as soon as I as soon as I set foot in New York, you know, I go back for visits or something. Everything kicks in. You yeah. know, my language, my movements. You know, I speed up about ten times. You know what I do here. Um, here, I don't know. I mean, I. It's been good and bad. I mean, I've had opportunities here that um, I probably wouldn't have had in the States, because especially in New York, the competition and the level and sheer amount of talent is so great that to actually be noticed or be successful in something, it's a crapshoot. Yeah. You know, and a lot of it depends on politics and, and you know positioning yourself. Whereas here, I, I find that Personally, I have more of an opportunity to be recognized for what I do, um, you know, if I do it well, get good recognition. On the downside of that, um, I'll sort of do this around the corner. Um, when I first came to Thailand, I had a very good friend, uh, a Thai woman who was from one of the uh, top families, richest families here. And... Uh, the reason I, I was in Bangkok, living in Bangkok, and the reason I became friends with her is I, I noticed all these magazine articles and newspaper articles about this Thai woman who played uh, bossa nova guitar and fronted a, a group at the Nusitani Hotel, most, and played also around. And I, I love Brazilian music. So I went to see her. We, you know, we developed a friendship and everything. Um, she, she went by the nickname uh, Dr. Kati. <laughs> and uh, she had actually lived in the States for quite... She got her 
law degree in LA, then she went to Berkeley School of Music in Boston. She was she lived with the uh, jazz musician Pat Metheny for many years. She you know so she had a lot of influence. Yeah. Um, but she came back numerous times, and the last time she left, which was about maybe twelve years ago, was for good. And she the her last words to me was she said, "Be careful because if you stay in Thailand too long." you lose your edge. That's interesting. And I understand what she means. I mean, there is a certain, whatever it is, tropical, you know, rhythm here or something like that. Sabai, sabai. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's easy to sort of flatten out a little bit. I think that's, I mean, that, you know, this compared to New York, that does make sense. Yeah, I mean, sure. you're not challenged sometimes, like you say. I mean, yeah. you threw you into the middle of New York, you know, obviously the, the amount of competition with what you do. It's, yeah, definitely, there's definitely advantages and disadvantages, yeah. that's yeah, for sure. Yeah. Makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So, um, and I haven't, I mean, well, I guess I was just saying I haven't written specifically on Thailand, but actually I have, the care and last execution, or, you know, all specifically about Thailand. But, <clears throat> I mean, um, you and I share a lot of the same friends who are writers, mainly in Bangkok, and, you know, a, a, lot, of, a lot of these people have written books about life in Thailand and everything. And I, I haven't really been motivated to do that mm. at this point. I mean, um, at some point I probably will, but it's not my, my main interest at this point. Yeah. You know. Cool, we, we're kind of into the last last section. I'm gonna, sure. I'm gonna throw some quick fire questions at you. I say quick fire, you don't need to answer them quickly. But they're, <laughs> okay. they're more random, more to, okay. you know, just, just more kind of interesting right. uh, trivia type things that might, might um, prompt some interesting answers. Um, one talent that you don't have that you wish you did have, if you could, ah. if you had a genie in the room and that they were able to give you one talent that, that you don't currently have um, that, that you would love, what would it be? Making a lot of money from my writing. <laughs> 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 I just don't seem to be you know, I mean, that's, that's the most truthful answer I can give you. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Um, if you could change or reverse one major decision that you made in life. In life or about yeah. writing? Wow. Is there one? Um, There's probably so many. <laughs> <laughs> it's going well. Uh, well, there's one marriage that I wouldn't have done, <laughs> but that's a whole other story. Um, um, okay, I, actually, I can tell you one that was very specific. and I, I don't have all that many regrets in life, but... Um, when I was in uh, college and university, I was at Columbia University in, in New York, and I was um, a music director on the, uh, the radio station, which was a very uh, well-known and very widely listened to FM station. And uh, I did shows. I did a nightly show. I did a, a weekend show. And... Um, and when I, when I graduated college, you know, I had already been accepted into the Columbia doctoral program in English literature, you know, great career choice, right? <laughs> um, and um, I got a call, well, no, I didn't get the call. It, it was a time when, this is, really dates me, it was a time when FM format was just becoming sort of rock and, and you know, more free form and everything. And in New York, the premier station on that was WNEW-FM. And there were a number of DJs who were becoming quite famous. One of them was a woman by the name of Alison Steele, who went under the moniker of the Nightbird. 
<laughs> she did a late night show and everything. And I had a lot of people listening to my show. And every, I, I didn't know that she was one of the listeners. But she called the station one day when I wasn't there. And she said, listen, please have Don call me back because uh, I'd like him to come and uh, do my programming. And <clears throat> whatever went through my mind, you know, I... I, I was such so much on this academic track that I, I said, well, you know, it's not, not really professional or academic or anything. And I loved being on radio. I loved being on radio. I loved planning shows and everything. And I didn't particularly love the academic stuff. I mean, I could do it well, but it wasn't like a real passion for me. And that choice I regret. Because, <laughs> I mean, not only, you know, perhaps I would have been famous on radio, but it just... It's just a whole different direction in life, which I think is more in line with who I am. I, I would define myself much more as an artist than as an academic. Right. I mean, I can do both well, but my passion is for the, for the art side. So, yeah, that, that's the regret. You know. this, is, this is a linked question um, if, you know, to the same question, but if 16-year-old if Don Linder <laughs> walked in the door right now, what advice would you give him? As in, you know... Yeah. Anything particular you would tell 16-year-old Don Linder that he needed to know? Good question. Um, wow. Uh, follow your passion. I mean, it's so trite, you know. I mean, it's, no, it's, but it's uh, often the, the basic stuff's often the true stuff. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's follow your passion. I mean, I, I have a son in the States, you know, and um, he's really following his passion, and I'm very proud of him, you know, and I'm very supportive of that. And, uh, you know, because he... he has his backslides on that too, unsure of what he's doing, but I keep reminding him, you know, this is what you love to do. And, um, and he's doing it. And uh, he's far from 16, but, you know. No, but, yeah, I mean, I think if 16-year-old if Don walked in, I might not recognize him, you know. But, <laughs> <laughs> Long lot, hair. A lot more hair, right? <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I guess that, you know, very, the basics. Cool. Basics, you know. <laughs> If you could bring one person back from the dead and sit and have a coffee with them, and it doesn't have to be someone you know, or you right. know, it could be someone famous, someone you never met that, right. that you love, you know, you would have loved to have had the, the pleasure of chatting over a coffee. Is, is there anyone you right. have idolized throughout your, your years and thought, God, I'd love to sit down with that person, wow. but they're not even around anymore? Well, uh, let me just preface that by saying, you know, as <clears throat> um, when I was in radio, I... I got to know a lot of people who were my musical idols, you know, hung out with them, some of the real big names. And uh, so I kind of fulfilled part of that. I think, um, this is going to sound very academic, but um, the, the uh, French writer, Albert Camus. This is uh, going to sound very unacademic of me, but who is, who is okay. the French Albert writer? Albert Camus was, was um, <clears throat> he, along with Jean-Paul Sartre in, in the... 30s, 40s, and 50s. He yeah. was the 60s. He was um, uh, sort of major existentialist writer. Okay. But the uh, the difference between Sartre and Camus was that Sartre was very, very, you know, uh, you know, ethereal, and, and, and you know, Camus was very down to earth. He was in the resistance, uh, French resistance during the World War. You know, put his life on the line. And everything, and um, for me, his writing—he's most famous for the novel *The Stranger*, which you know every high school kid reads and everything. And um, I just find him a fascinating person. He, 
he, uh, he did win the Nobel Prize, but he, he was in a car crash in, in Algeria, uh, where the stranger takes place, and he died quite young, you know. Um, so yeah, I'd like to meet him. But as I said, you know, I, I'm, um, I don't know if I can say this when you start, on your uh, podcast, but I've never been a star fucker, you know. I, I've never been a what? A star fucker. You a know, star I, fucker. I, you I, can say what I, you want on the podcast. Okay. <laughs> I, I won't bleep it out. Okay. I've never heard that expression. It, it, it's, it's not a Chiang Mai expression. It must be a New York expression. It, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's basically like a... A groupie or somebody yeah, who you yeah, know, yeah. wants to be around, you know, star. Because I've been fortunate to be around stars a lot, and and um, I've never been wowed by by people. I just, you know, if I click with somebody, I click with somebody. Um, the only one that wowed me. This is really a tangent, but uh, when I was in college in New York, I, I was a part-time uh, New York City taxi driver, and um, <clears throat> one day, I I picked up. I was hailed by and picked up the uh, insane artist Salvador Dali. Wow! <laughs> and uh, he got into my into my cab, and uh, you know I asked him where he's going. And after he told me where he's going, he the next thing he, he said to me is he said, um, uh, "Do you know what I ate for lunch?" I said, "I don't know what you ate for lunch. Tell me what did you eat for lunch?" And he said, uh, "I had a butterfly salad." And okay, we did the conversation in French, so I thought maybe I was missing something, you know. Yeah. And and then he explained to me, no, he he ate live butterflies for lunch, and that that wowed me. I guess that was really uh, something that just you know, uh, I wouldn't say it was a star fuck on that, but that that was like something out of the realm of anything I ever know. That's not the kind of story that many people have to share. That's right. interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And it didn't come from being an artist, it came from being a taxi driver. <laughs> cool, we're pretty much at the end of it. Okay, Just yeah. one more question, which is, is there anything I haven't asked you that, that you'd like to, to be asked or you'd like to just talk about? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of it right now. It's been very, been very comprehensive, I appreciate it. <laughs> cool, though. It's been, mate, it's been really, it's been good to chat. I was enjoying, yeah. I was looking forward to this because... Good. You know, I've done a few of these now, and it's it's always good with someone you've you've done some work with and know well, and right. yeah, wish you the the best of luck with the, with the upcoming film, and I'll look forward to to watching it great. when it comes out later in the year. And yeah, thanks, good. thanks for joining the pod, Don. Sounds great. Good. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks. It was very nice. It was a very nice experience. Thanks. Yeah,